So, what did you read this week? I read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. How about you? I read Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Morarity, which I'm so sorry if I'm saying that surname wrong. I have been practicing before recording. (laughs) If you're new to the podcast, firstly, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. The basic premise of our podcast is we're answering the all-important question of would we take these books to our island library? And the way we do that is we'll go in turns now to say the summary or the blurbs off the back of the books. Then we'll launch into my pitch where I will then try and entice you all to go and buy this book before giving the rundown of the events of the book, my thoughts and feelings on the book, as well as my seashell rating, and then obviously answering the all-important question before I hand over to Laura, who will then do the same. At the end, we will then do Joe's random question of the week, which is many listeners' favourite part. (laughs) So I'm going to kick off with the blurb for Nine Perfect Strangers. One house, nine strangers, ten days that will change everything. The retreat at Health and Wellness Resort Tranquilum House promises total transformation. Nine stressed city dwellers are keen to drop their literal and mental baggage and absorb the mediative ambience while enjoying their hot stone massages. Miles from anywhere, without cars or phones, they have no way to reach the outside world. Just time to think about themselves and get to know each other. Watching over them is the resort's director, a woman on a mission but quite a different one from any of the guests might have imagined. For behind the retreat's glamorous facade lies a dark agenda. These nine perfect strangers have no idea what's about to hit them. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'll read the blurb for my book then and then we can jump into Joe's pitch, etc. It should be fun. So, the blurb for The Invisible Life. France, 1714. A desperate woman makes a desperate deal in the dark. A bargain to live forever, but be remembered by none. So begins the invisible life of Addie LaRue, shadow muse to artists throughout history, forgotten friend, confidant and lover, slipping away with the morning light. Addie passes through lives, desperate only to leave a trace of herself. Until the day she walks back into a small bookshop in Manhattan and meets Henry, who remembers her. After 300 years, Addie's life is restarting, but the devil never plays fair. As Henry and Addie's lives start to intertwine, they must face the consequences of the decisions they've made and the prices to be paid. Ooh. Mm. Intriguing. Yes. But we'll come back to that. Yes, we will. Yes. I'm going to jump straight in. I was I was trying to hype myself up a little bit to talk about this book because it's a, it's, a, um, it's a difficult book to talk about without going into spoilers. So we're going to have to see how well Jo does. She's got a strong track record so far. So hopefully I can pull this one off. So here is my pitch for Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. When nine people decide to go on a retreat to better themselves, they don't envision being bonded for life. With noble silence, morning yoga, smoothies that taste too nice, and forced therapy, these strangers will delve deeper than face value. They'll see past pain, grief and sorrow, and discover anger, love and so much more. On this retreat, they'll be tested, all forced to confront something in their life, as well as the lies they're willing to tell. Very intriguing. So, just to give sort of a 
rundown premise. I'm going to just select some of the, the characters that I felt a deeper connection to just because there's a lot of characters. Obviously, there's uh, nine strangers that we're dealing with, as well as Tranquillum House's sort of resorts director, Masha, as well as some of the staff. We do get a little bit of their points of view sort of fed through the book. Often I feel like that would lead me down into an alleyway where I'm going to raise more questions than answer them. So I'm going to probably stay away from them and only touch on them very briefly. So the characters we first meet is Frances, who is a single twice divorced woman who is currently going through the menopause. She is down on her luck. She's feeling a bit out of sorts. She's a romance writer. And she has strong opinions already that her book that she's just sent to her agent hasn't gone down super well. And that's in the back of her mind. And that's confirmed just before she gets to Tranquillum House, which obviously is just a bit of a kicker. I think obviously from when she first started and she was a massive hit, things have radically changed within the publishing world. And she's no longer the sought after author she once was, which is obviously very difficult for her to deal with. She's also just been recently scammed on the internet. Um, I'm not laughing at that. It's just, I actually really liked that the author chose to involve a storyline that we often see so popular amongst women of that age. And the fact that Francis meets this lovely guy on the internet. They are planning a future together. He's completely fished her in and he's introduced her many times online to his son who he then rings her in the middle of the night and says, he's been in a terrible accident. I need some money. So obviously she doesn't hesitate. She sends that money over and turns out he's an internet scammer. So she's a little bit bruised already. She's obviously sweating profusely as well because of the menopause. So she's she's not doing great. When she first arrives, she's frustrated to find that she can't get in like she's tried the key code she can't get in she's tried ringing she's goes through to a very lovely voicemail and then ben and jessica arrive in their very posh lamborghini ben and jessica have their own issues ben and jessica are going through marital problems this is all in part down to their recent win in the lottery they've won millions of pounds All of their life has radically changed. The friends that they once knew, the family members that they loved. Ben has a sister who is a drug addict, which often comes up within the story. So if that's a storyline you're really uncomfortable with, this might not be the book for you because it it plays a strong part in this book. And because of that, Jessica's always feeling like the family sort of bends over backwards for Ben's sister. And she's a little bit, I wouldn't say put out, but she also doesn't know Ben's sister before all of the drugs and the addiction. So Jessica's only got this one point of view of Ben's sister and she does not like Ben's sister. Ben is also feeling some kind of way because Jessica's used a lot of her money to improve herself physically. He is not best pleased with her change in appearance because he thought she was beautiful beforehand. And while he does support that, obviously she feels better within herself, he finds it quite hard at times to look at her, which obviously isn't, isn't great. Thankfully, they rock up and they help Francis get in and all is sorted and Ben's stressing about his car. He's worried that it won't be under some like underground parking. So he keeps trying to ask the staff if that's the case. 
She's hilarious when I think of it back. But they try to reassure him that that is the case and they have to hand over their bags, their phones, any technology they have. I think even to the point they should have handed over the watches because later on there's a scene where someone has a watch and they shouldn't actually have that watch. So I think they're meant to be completely cut off from time, space and the outside world. We then get a tour through Francis's point of view by one of the staff members and it's, it sounds like a beautiful place, to be fair. Every single guest makes a comment about how extraordinary it is, how beautiful, how tranquil it all is. But you do get this weird vibe underneath that not everything is what it seems. Frances is sort of being her jokey self. She seems very bubbly and outspoken. Even if she's obviously carrying a lot of deeper sadness underneath, she doesn't expel that so much. And she bumps into Napoleon, his wife, Heather, and his daughter, Zoe, who on face value just look like a regular family who, you know, Francis is like, I wonder why they're there because they look so fit and healthy, why they're here. To which we later learn that they're going through their own journey of grief because uh, Zach, uh, Heather and Napoleon's son and Zoe's twin brother has passed away. We don't learn the details of that until later on. I was umming and ahhing about saying it, but I, th- I do feel like it's handled with grace. But obviously, I want to give that warning to anybody that's going to pick the book up. But it, it is through suicide. So that's obviously a, a current theme that runs with their storyline. So if that's something as well that you're really uncomfortable with, I would probably avoid picking up this book. Because while they don't go into detail of what actually happened, they go into a lot of grief surrounding that and the family are the ones that found him so they obviously have that image that keeps reappearing and a lot of guilt over the way that they found him as well when they all first get there they're living the dream they think this is brilliant until Frances learns that she's going to have to drink this smoothie in front of one of the staff members like she doesn't just get given a smoothie and then she can drink it at her leisure she's sort of forced to drink it like there and then so she does And then she's told when she can eat and stuff. And that on the chime of the three bells, they'll have to go into a noble silence. So for anyone like myself who was like, what the hell is a noble silence? It's basically where you literally don't talk to anyone, not even the people you share a room with. So for the family, like Heather and Napoleon, Zoe is actually in a different room. So she doesn't tend to come into that parental room, thankfully. And then for Ben and Jessica, they're in the same room together. They're sleeping in the same bed, but they're not allowed to talk. They're also not allowed to touch, which I thought was weird. But hey-ho, each to their own. And then that's when we meet Masha, which is the resorts director and the woman who started this all. There is a really interesting storyline that runs all the way through the book between the staff members and Masha. And I'm actually going to leave that one and put a pin in it because it leads quite into a lot of spoilers because it goes quite far back. It goes actually 10 years before we actually even meet Francis, Ben and Jessica, etc. But that chain of events has sort of led all of what happens from the middle to the end of the book. And it's so infrequently mentioned in the first half of the book that if I start to pull on that thread, I feel like I'm going to unravel something that I won't be able to take back. So. Obviously, they've all sort of bumped into each other, but they sort of go for a meditation as soon as the noble silence has begun. And then they all sort of come face to face with one another. Another one of the rules is that they can't make direct eye contact with other people during the noble silence. Flipping hell. (laughs) It's a lot of strict rules that you must abide when staying at Tranquillum House. So obviously this is their first time to eye one another up and Frances is immediately jarred because on her way to Tranquillum House she has a hot flash 
or hot flush. Um, in the book, it says hot flash, but I, I think it's a hot flush, what we call it here in the UK. They're Australian, aren't they? Yeah, they're Australian. So she's sort of gets out of the car. She's like screaming because she, I think she's just found out that her book isn't like the one and she's just having a bit of a moment and this very nice stranger sort of approaches her and makes sure she's okay but then he gets a bit patronizing so she gets her back up but obviously she immediately enters this meditation room and sees him and she's like well fucking great like he's here now and she tries to be above what she normally is so that she looks like she's quite put together because this guy's obviously seen her at quite a low moment and that constantly plays into her head also Masha is like giving the speech of her life about all the life-changing qualities you're going to walk away from at Tranquilum House you're gonna have weight loss you're gonna have shed some guilt you're going to feel better than you've ever felt in your entire life and it becomes a little bit too much for Zoe who walks out she also breaks the noble silence, which then causes absolute chaos in the meditation room. And Francis, thankfully, hurries after her. They end up really opening up to one another. And it's actually a really sweet moment in the book where Zoe just sort of tells Francis what's going off with her family. But in a way where you can tell she's had to explain herself that many times that it's she's become a little bit numb to actually what's happened. And you can tell there's a lot more to the story than what she's explaining. But obviously that's more to do with each character's guilt. Frances is very supportive. She actually finds one of her books on the bookshelf at Tranquillum House. So she gives it to Zoe. And obviously Zoe says, oh yeah, I'll read that. That'd be lovely. And they sort of strike up a, a secret friendship because as much as Frances has obviously chosen to be there, she sort of, I think, feels a bit above the place. And, you know, they keep assuming she wants to lose weight, but she's actually just there just to sort of be a better person and just you know, de-stress. The life of a writer is, is very stressful. And, you know, she's obviously just had the money taken off her. <laughs> she's had the internet scandal. So she's going through her own journey as well. Some of the other characters are really interesting and in how their dynamic plays out. But for the first couple of days, the house just seems very quiet. We sort of join the book when it, it feels quite tense. Like every character is very stressed. And they're at a point where they're constantly trying to put on this front that they're all really put together. But actually, they've all got these lingering dark thoughts underneath. Jessica honestly feels like Ben isn't attracted to her. Ben actually isn't attracted to her. Francis is like, is this my life now? Am I going to be on my own forever? Am I ever going to be a writer again? Zoe's not sure how to get on with her life, knowing that her birthday that's coming up in a few days when they're actually at Tranquilum House is sort of overshadowed by the same fact that it's Zach's birthday because they're twins and her parents just don't seem to be doing that well. Napoleon's a really interesting character as well because he's the dad and you can tell he's trying to keep everything together. He's trying to always be the happy-go-lucky guy. He's a he's a head teacher, so he is always just trying to be the best version of himself all the time. So I think to an exhausting fault of his because when he joins the Noble Silence, he takes it very seriously his wife seems to think that's because he's a rule follower and obviously because he's a teacher. But actually, I think it's because that's what he really needed. And he just really wanted to absorb into that silence where he didn't have to be this loud, bubbly person all the time. And I think for Heather, she finds it increasingly difficult sitting with her own thoughts because she's feeling a lot of guilt over some stuff that happened with Zach. So all of these characters are obviously the ones that I'm really going to do. A, I've done a deep dive into and that's just showing you how multi-layered they are. But when we first meet them, we meet them one after the other and it is a touch confusing because 
it's quite hard when you're immediately thrown into a story and you're already in somebody's head. But because there are so many different personalities to try and get a hold of, you actually don't know where each person is. And also to raise the tension and to sort of entice you more into the book, you sort of also introduce them at a halfway point. So you don't actually learn about what's happened to Frances until the second time you meet her. You don't actually realise Ben and Jessica have won the lottery until a little bit down the line. So you kind of think, are they like influencers? Are they just people who have just been born into money? Like you don't know the full story, which makes it a little bit hard to connect with them at first until they start socialising with other characters. Because of that, when they all sort of meet at the meditation point, the two that really stood out were Francis and Zoe because they could have that emotional bond together and they had that private moment. Whereas everybody else was quite silent or sort of argumentative because Tranquilum House has been through their bags and even though they specifically told them not to bring certain things, they all brought contraband anyway, so... (laughs) They broke the rules, so apparently that's why they go through their bags, which I'm a little bit still on the fence about. However, after this point, when they're because they're in the noble silence, the book sort of falls into a slower pace that becomes a little bit, I don't want to say boring, but the word closest to boring that you could find. I already felt quite tense because I had this perception that this book was going to be quite creepy it was going to like, you know, push you into places that you hadn't been before. And then we sort of end up doing yoga outside and I know they're all things that you come to expect from something like this but because of the blurb we're kind of led to believe creepy things are going to happen and while the staff do odd things like walk into their bedroom in the middle of the night with a flashlight and shine it in their faces the tension has already gone because there's not a lot happening which then when it comes to later on in the book with a scene that's basically they're all like locked in a room together the tension should feel a lot more like piping hot at that point But because it went through such a lull, it doesn't feel like that. Like, don't be wrong, at no point did I want to put this book down. But I did find that the pacing was a little bit all over the map, which made it quite difficult. And it took me a long time to bond with people other than Frances. Because while the book is told from different point of views, it's her head we're in the most. And because of that, I know a lot more about her. I know how she's going to react in situations. So that if we're, say, for example, in Heather's head and she's interacting with Frances, I know how Frances is reacting without seeing her chapter. However, that's quite difficult when you're in Frances' head and you're interacting with another character because I don't know that character. So it makes it it makes it hard. And I think at times it, it really put my imagination to the test a little bit, which is nice from a book to be challenged but also there's that much going off I didn't know which thread to follow until it sort of hit the halfway point and things really started to kick off I should also say although spoiler warning but it's mainly because again it's sort of a theme that I think people could feel uncomfortable about Mash just sort of drugs them which obviously flares up a lot of Ben's feelings about you know his family and he stays away from that he also doesn't sound like he even really drinks because he's so scared of being addicted to anything and there's obviously a lot to unpack with that and obviously I'm gonna just I know I've mentioned it but I'm gonna put a pin in it because it does lead down a thread that I will ruin the entire book for everybody and I'm doing really well so everyone should just be more (laughs) proud that I've not spoiled a book but because of that they sort of all bond together which is really great which is fantastic and it's the first time we've really seen them all interact in a room together but it took us such a long point to get there and then we spent so much time in that room afterwards to the point that nothing else happened we have this big wide space of a house we have grounds we have so much and we spend so much time in this one room no one gets a breather 
all the characters can only emotionally react to something another character has said, which is great. But that tension was missing because of how long we spent before it doing yoga, doing Tai Chi in the morning and doing midnight star watching, I think it was. It just felt a little bit, it felt like the core things were then meeting and then them being in the room and then the middle just sort of got forgotten about and how we were going to connect A to C and B just fell a little bit flat. I wouldn't say it was enough to make me want to put the book down, but I was starting to really disengage with the story. But then the rest of the book was so amazing that then on reflection, it looks like a disservice for me not to mention it, but to say that I really enjoyed the book, even though that's happened. I've also went back and had a look at a lot of people's reviews and they also felt the same, that while um, Leanne is a really strong writer, which I have to agree with, like her book was really well thought out. The characters, I think we were selected to fall in love with more characters than others so I think it was an intentional choice at points we are meant to dislike the characters and we're meant to like the characters and that's a purposeful choice within the book which I really liked that she handled but other people have agreed with me that the pacing is just sometimes a little bit off which then really fluctuates with that tension and that knotting feeling and at certain chapters I was literally skimming it thinking okay something's gonna happen soon which I felt a bit bad about. So that's just something to be aware of if you're reading and you're thinking, why is everyone raving about this book? And it's quite slow here. It is definitely worth the payoff of keep continuing. I want to say that it was like an artistic choice to lure you into a full sense of, you know, surprise, but we're already told from the blurb that something isn't what it seems. So I don't know, it just felt a little bit unnecessary. Have you got any questions? So see, you mentioned that you definitely were more attached to some characters than others and that that seemed to kind of be deliberate. Did you feel that there might be too many characters or do you think that they were kind of balanced effectively with, you know, an intentional choice to prioritise some points of view over others? I do think there was a little bit too many, mainly because we couldn't give those characters real time to shine. There's another sort of middle-aged woman who's single and her husband has recently, well, her ex-husband has recently started dating someone younger than her. She's also not got children of her own, so her body's like flawless. And that's what the woman focuses on. And it would have been really interesting to maybe sit in her head for a little bit longer, just because she was playing with a lot of body dysmorphic views and maybe to see how she got there. We get a few chapters of her, but not enough, I feel like, to... I don't want to sound cold, but to care. Her time to shine actually came so much later in the book that I actually found her irritating because I was like, okay, you're a little bit obsessive about this. And because I hadn't sat in her head, I didn't really understand why she was so obsessed with the views that she had, which I thought was a little bit of a disservice to her. There was also another character who is a male male football player or like uh, an Australian football player. Like he's famous because they all seem to recognize him and it seems like his entire purpose to be there was to help them with this task rather than have any sort of emotional value to the rest of the plot so definitely like even those two if we took them out there's seven characters left which i've picked six already so you can already tell that i don't think a lot would have happened if we maybe had swapped lars i think the guy is who sees francis in her menopausal state swapped him with the other guy i think even that could have like vastly improved things because then we would have got more consecutive chapters of some of the other characters rather than it being so sporadic i mean i would say a good third of the book is from francis's point of view just to show the disparity between all the characters but at times it was like Francis's chapter, then it was followed by another Francis's chapter. It wasn't like we even stepped away from her for a second. So I think that possibly would have helped with with pacing as well. Intention is sitting in someone else's head a little bit and working out why they're the way that they are. Fair enough. So the only other question that I have, and I don't know how difficult this will be, but 
because I've read this book, although a while ago, so there's a lot that I've forgotten. Without going into any specifics, because obviously we want to avoid spoilers, things get a bit weird. Yeah. Did they feel too weird or did they remain within the realm of the believable for you? I thought that they stayed within the believable because we already get this distinct impression that Masha is not the full cookie. There's definitely a piece and a half missing from her. (laughs) So it didn't surprise me. I was shocked, but the same level of shock as what the characters were shocked at. And I wasn't like, oh, that's really unbelievable. That wouldn't happen. Also, we get quite an early warning that something is amiss because Francis gets a massage and the masseuse basically says to her, like, don't do anything you don't want to do. Which obviously puts Francis like, oh my God, like I need to be aware of things. And right at the end, there's a really funny go back to that. And Francis actually speaks to that person and says, you told me this. And she went, yeah, I just meant like lunges and stuff. Like I didn't mean like all this crazy stuff that was going on. (laughs) Which I thought was really funny because I think it added something to the value that not everybody was aware of how weird the place was. Sure. But yeah, I thought it was... um, I thought it was really natural how it all sort of played out. And it was, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, all retreats are like this because I know that they're not. But I think it's believable that you would think some retreats might push you into a space that you're not entirely comfortable with for sure. Cool. So then the other thing I'm curious about, of course, is what your seashell rating was for this book. So I thought it was really difficult with this book because on one hand, I really, really enjoyed it and I really struggled to put it down. Like for me, I started this on Friday when I finished work and I literally finished it Friday night. However, the pacing, especially from the first quarter to the halfway point just felt a little bit off. And I was just thinking, okay, where is the direction of this book going? That it sort of brought it down for me. So I think I'm going to I'm gonna go with like a four out of five seashells because mm-hmm. it would have been a five if that pacing had been a little bit better I think sure thing so then of course the question is would you take nine perfect strangers to the island library with you yeah I think I would oh wow yeah I know I'm being critical I always feel like I'm a little bit harder on books that I have really enjoyed because Mm -hmm. it's sort of like going I know I've really enjoyed this but I know it has these flaws sure so um I'm gonna replace the black kids with nine perfect strangers just because i thought this played with so much creepiness especially from the halfway point the tension was so spicy and i was just so in awe of leanne's writing at that point and i could now when i look back at certain things there were definitely a lot of breadcrumbs that led to this weird place and it was just so much fun i've not read a book like that in such a long time that i think it as well really blew me away and i can see laura like nodding fiercely because laura's read this book so did you really enjoy this book as well i did yeah it's probably not my favorite of hers although it's a sort of slightly different feel than some of the other stuff i've read from her but I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting book. Just something as well, if you're a fan of this and just been listening and just wanting to see what the what the down low is, it is coming out on Hulu soon. And amazingly, and I think she's a perfect casting actually, is Masha is going to be played by Nicole Kidman, which I think is going to be <laughs> phenomenal. But the trailer for that is currently up on YouTube and I will put that in the show notes as well, just because it does look great. We do pre-record these episodes slightly in advance. So if at the time there's a release date, I'll also make sure that's in the show notes. But as of now with recording, there isn't one. It just says coming soon to Hulu. So I will put that in the show notes if I know any more information on that when the episode goes live. Fun times. Fun times. I just thought it was such a clever book. 
I also kind of, I don't want to do the weird stuff, but I just want to like see the house. So I'm going to be really excited to watch it as well. Yeah, no, that'll be really fun seeing it come to life. But yeah, that's Nine Perfect Strangers. Okay, so I guess I will talk about The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue then. So I have a pitch. Woohoo! Addie LaRue makes a desperate deal with the devil. She wants freedom and more time and receives them both, but at a heavy price. Nobody will remember her. And not even just in the long run, Addie can be forgotten in the time it takes to fetch something from another room. Travelling the world, unable to leave a mark, Addie tries to find her own meaning in experiences and art, while resigning herself to the loneliness of her curse. Until a young man in a bookshop remembers her and changes everything. Aww, your pictures are always just so, like, chef's oh, kiss. Thank you. I think I like yours more than the original one. I worked quite hard on my pitch for this one. And I thought long and hard about whether to include the mention of the boy in the bookshop, but it had already been mentioned in the blurb. If I had my way, people would go into this book not knowing about that. I'll come back to that later. Yeah. I, so, I, I mean, I love the premise of this book. I think it's a really interesting take on the would you want to live forever, like what the downsides of that might be. The book cuts between present day, which is 2014 in the book, and Addie's past. So she grew up in rural France in the 1700s. It takes us to the year she made a deal, and then we get snapshots of her life in the years beyond that. So she kind of adapted to what that meant for her and kind of figured out how to live as best she could with her new condition. We also get some chapters from Henry's point of view, and I think we get those in the run-up to her meeting him for the first time, which obviously doesn't make an impression because, you know, people do see her and speak to her. But then the second time when he remembers her, which is what is the big surprise. I enjoyed the characters. I really liked Addie. Watching her kind of come to understand the limits of her condition, her curse, watching her try to figure out how to find meaning in a life that can't make an impression by its very definition. That was so interesting to me. I feel like we could have seen a bit more character growth over 300 years, potentially. Like, you you might expect somebody to change a bit more. She does change. And I think the way she changes is interesting. She seems to become a lot more calculating and strategic. But, I don't know, I guess I might expect somebody who's lived that long to have a slightly different perspective. But her perspective doesn't seem to change all that much. I also really enjoyed her stubbornness, which I'll probably come back to in a little bit. I won't fully go through all of the parameters of her curse because it's really good fun to watch her figure it out. And you get kind of a size like, oh, it had taken her a long time to realise X. But essentially, if, if she was talking to you and then you heard knock at the door, so you went, it was a delivery, had to sign for the delivery, you come back in, you'd be like, who are you and what are you doing in my house? Yeah. Everybody who knew her before the curse has also forgotten her when the curse is put into effect. So she comes back from the woods where she makes this deal. She doesn't know what she's giving up when she makes the deal. Exactly. She's trying to escape what she sees as being a very small life. She's about to be married off to some guy for very poorly defined reasons. It's all a bit convenient for the plot, but whatever. And she wants to be able to travel and see the world. So she strikes this bargain with, she calls him the darkness at first. He kind of has several names. It's like, is he a god? Is he the devil? Is he whatever? They kind of settle on calling him the devil, but he's a bit 
whatever about <laughs> how you identify him. And yeah, so she has asked him for more time. Initially, that's what she asks for. And he says, how much? And she doesn't have an answer for him. So he's like, well, I, I don't do open-ended bargains. You know, there's got to be something in it for me. So she says, you can have my soul when I'm done with it. And that intrigues him. So obviously, he decides that this thing where nobody can remember her will be his way of making sure that she gets really sick of it really quickly. But that kind of makes her even more determined to find something to enjoy in her life. So that kind of back and forth is quite fun. So the devil, the darkness, he also gets called Luke. She gives him the name Luke at some point. He's an interesting character. When Addie was a child, there was an old woman in the village she was really close to, and she taught Addie never to accept help from the gods who answer after dark. That was kind of her one rule. And it was kind of a moment of desperation that Addie was like, I don't care, I just need help from somebody, anybody. And that's when Luke or the darkness shows up. So you get to see their their relationship kind of develop across some of those snapshots of Addie's life leading up to 2014, when kind of the main plot of the book is set. And... It's interesting because she kind of, obviously she hates him because he's cursed her to a, a life of complete loneliness, but also he's the only kind of consistent figure in her very long existence. So their relationship is a little bit complicated and a little bit interesting. And he kind of finds her interesting as well because most of his deals tend to be, you know, he says to somebody, all right, you've got X amount of time. And then he only sees them again when he comes to collect their soul. Yeah. So he doesn't have an ongoing relationship with humans for the most part. So he's found a strange sort of company in her as well. And that creates a really fun dynamic. And then, of course, the other main character is Henry, who's sweet, ironically kind of forgettable. <laughs> but he's really, really lost. You see this quite quickly, that he does not know what he wants to do with his life at all. And he's really struggling with that. He doesn't want to narrow down his choices, basically. There's a kind of sense that he doesn't want to pick a direction and close off other doors, which I kind of empathise with. But also, at points, I kind of wanted to shake him and just be like, choose something, choose something and do it, try it. If you hate it, you can try something else. Yeah. You know, you don't actually have to. Because he's only in his 20s. Dude, you've, you've been wondering what you want to do with yourself for all of your young life. And you, you can just do anything. Bless him, no. I know. It must be so hard. I, I heavily relate to him because I'm almost like, I know what I want to do, but I'm so scared. I know, I know. And I did feel for him as well. He's got some interesting stuff going on that I obviously won't go into any more detail with, but I really liked him, despite occasionally wishing. And I only I only wanted it in the same way that, you know, when you see somebody that you really care about kind of just going in circles and you just want to be like, I just want you to be happy. So it was it was that. Honourable mention as well to the various characters that Addie tries to forge some kind of relationship with, even though they forget her constantly. So the first thing you see of her in 2014, she's waking up in somebody's flat that, with this guy. And she's been through this a few times with him before. It's very quickly apparent. And obviously... He's been asleep, so when he sees her, he's kind of confused. But he's trying to be polite because he's like, obviously, he's mortified that he's brought this girl home and obviously forgotten who the hell she is. And but to her, she's been doing this for weeks, and she's get she's got to know him pretty well, and she quite likes him. But he can never forge a real relationship with her because she's always just going to be she's always going to be forgotten. 
mystery girl. So sort of seeing the little ways that she's tried to kind of forge a relationship with this guy, and this has obviously happened various times over her history, and kind of tried to make little impressions. So there's this thing where she goes into his cupboard because she knows that he's got tea that she likes, but that's because they went out shopping one night, and she because obviously as long as they're together, he can remember her, and she made him get tea that she likes. And so that's in his cupboard. He won't know why that tea is in there. He'll be like, I wonder when I got that. That's so weird. I don't drink that. But for her, now every morning that she wakes up in his flat, even though he doesn't know her, she knows that there's this tea that she likes. Aww. I know. Such a cutie. So one of the themes of the book seems to really be grappling with what a life is worth if you can't have any impact on the world, which is heavy. (laughs) Addie had kind of two complementary motivations for agreeing to this deal in the first place. So one was that she wanted to escape from the narrow life that she was expecting, that she knew that she would have if she stayed at home. But also she wasn't just running away from that. She wanted to see more. So she wanted to see the world and know what was out beyond the bounds of this place that she grew up. So it's kind of like a the whole book is almost a thought experiment in like optimistic nihilism. If nothing that you do matters in the long run. The only thing that means anything is how much you enjoy what you're doing right now, yeah. because that's the only thing that exists. So from that point of view, it was interesting seeing the moments that made Addie consider giving up, the moments where she felt kind of despair versus the things that kept her wanting to carry on and the moments where she thought, no, despite everything, this is worth it. And it does really leave you wondering where you would find joy if all of the usual ways of making meaning from your life were ruled out for you. Like she can't write anything. If she writes anything, it disappears. There's one moment where she's attacked by somebody and she fights back and she stabs them and then runs away. And when they forget her, the injury disappears as well because she can't leave a mark on another person. Can she take a photograph or does she vanish from that as well? If somebody takes a photograph of her, it comes out blurry or you can't see her face or the photograph doesn't come out at all or the camera glitches or, you know, there are all sorts of... Oh, Addy. I know, I know. The um, the art thing is interesting. So she's, it mentions, I think in the blurb, her being kind of a muse. She's kind of attracted to artists and she likes to kind of drop in ideas and stuff that tend to stick around a bit more than the actual impression of her. So the book is interspersed with these pictures of pieces of art that you either find out directly or indirectly that she had some part in. So... That's quite sweet. She's kind of found that little way of dropping herself into other people's lives. And very clever. Yeah, no, for sure. One thing that's a bit weird is that given that she's been exploring the world for 300 years, she doesn't seem to have got to that much of it. It's really just Europe and America. And she also has kind of a quite blinkered view of the world for somebody whose main motivation was wanting to see it all. Like, you'd think that she'd get to more than two continents if her whole motivation for making this deal, or a huge part of it anyway was wanting to see as much of the world as possible. And she's had three centuries. Yeah. She lives through some pretty dramatic periods of history, and we hear quite little about them. For instance, she's in Europe during the First and Second World Wars. She's in America during the Civil Rights Movement. And we get very little on her thoughts on these major events. She does have some brief involvement at one point, which I liked, and there's a sense that she kind of found a way to use her curse to her advantage and to the advantage of others in that time which I did really like. But when I say brief, I mean, it was over in a few sentences. And I would have loved to see a bit more of that. Now, I know that this isn't historical fiction, that it wasn't meant to be exploring these periods of time. The focus is on Addie herself. But that could have been an interesting 
element of character development. It could have been part of what kept her feeling motivated to stick around in the world. And it kind of created the impression that after hundreds of years, Addie's main focus is also herself, that she didn't really learn to care about what happens to other people in a broader sense, that she doesn't really care about trying to use what she can to help. So that is what I mean when I say, when I said earlier about her perspective seeming kind of narrow for someone who's lived that long. I kind of would have expected her to, I don't know, look a bit more outward at some point. So there's that. The book definitely highlights the importance of art and the necessity of creativity in the way that I think as a writer, I particularly enjoyed and a firm believer in the arts and the importance of the arts. So that's a fun, a fun element. I've read some complaints that the first part of the book is kind of repetitive and boring, which I do understand, but I think it's I think it serves a purpose. The whole point is to illustrate this is the the life that Addie has been living is kind of boring a lot of the time. She doesn't get to build relationships with people. She can't have a permanent home, so she's always kind of like finding some temporary solution for being cold or hungry or dirty or tired. And it's very difficult for her. And I guess to to the earlier point, it's quite difficult to think in a bigger sense when you're always wondering how you're going to get your next meal. She can't hold down a job. No, she can't can't rent anywhere. (laughs) And it might feel boring and repetitive, but it is because for her, it will be boring and repetitive. Exactly. Imagine trying to live the same day, like not even the same day, it's a new day, but you're facing the same problems as the day before Mm. because you can never jump over that hurdle you can never make someone remember you so the things that fill other people's time can't fill hers no exactly because no one knows who the hell she is yeah all she can do is experience stuff she can read things she can watch things she can listen to things but she can't make anything and when you think about how much time you spend like how much of your free time you spend talking to people that you care about and writing or if making music is your thing or sketching or drawing or you know if you think about ruling out anything in your life like that you know things would get samey because you're always just thinking all right where am I going to get food from when I have no money and can't even order at a restaurant because when the server goes away they'll have forgotten that they (laughs) that they had took an order from me in the first place also the writing is really lovely V.E. Schwab has a lovely way with prose so for me that was enough to keep me engaged for that first period of the book where things from a plot point of view aren't really going anywhere and it serves to create more of a contrast when finally for the first time in the last 300 years something different happens and somebody remembers her and it's a remarkable moment like I cannot overstate how exciting it is to read somebody say to her I remember you And I kind of wish it was easier to go into this book not knowing that was going to happen. Yeah. I guess it's mentioned so that you know that you're waiting for something to change because otherwise people might give up on it in that first bit where you're like, well, how is anything different going to happen? But I don't know. I just wish that we could have experienced that shock with her without having been waiting for it because she's not waiting for it. She's going about her business. No, I, I I, think I agree. The author does do a nice job of showing how stunned she is, but... Yeah, I think it would have. it's like a nice little thing you come across, isn't it? And the other thing is, of course, because we do start reading from Henry's point of view. So you know that, there's, that he's got a storyline. We would have known that their stories would have intersected in an interesting way, but we wouldn't necessarily have to know how. Like, we wouldn't have to know that he's going to remember her. Some people might guess that, 
but still it would still be like oh i was right rather than rather than just like having his perspective introduced and then waiting for because there are moments where you're just like waiting for them to meet so that she can find out that he is going to remember her which is a little bit sad because it kind of takes away some of the some of the mystery of reading from henry's point of view and wondering what he's doing here wondering how he's going to get involved so yeah that's one of my bugbears there is that I wish we could have taken that out of the blog. I'm kind of ready to sum up. I don't know if you have any questions. So I do have a few. So the first one was, do you think the book handles being invisible well? And what I mean by that is, I know obviously there's the big picture stuff, like, you know, she can't make music and she can't make art and things like that. But, you know, even just how she feels, do you think that was really handled well? Yeah, I think so. I think obviously when we're in the 2014 time, she's had a long time to get used to it but even so you get these moments that show that it still stings and then you also have those sections from earlier in her life where she wasn't quite as used to it and so the sort of pain of it is even fresher or not even just the pain sometimes just the annoyance of it and the boring mundane frustrations of not being able to hold on to anything there's like three possessions that she has and she anything else that she collects eventually just kind of gets lost no matter how careful she is with it. If for no other reason than she's got nowhere to keep anything. <laughs> so if she can't keep it on her person, she doesn't stand much chance of holding onto it for long. So between the kind of the ways that she rebels against it and tries to find clever ways around it and seeing the things that she has to give up on and seeing moments where people that she likes or cares about or has had a really lovely few moments with seeing those moments where they forget her again i think the author does a really nice job of both having it be repetitive enough that you feel the kind of the layered oh not this again that addy gets and also having some of them be subtly different in ways that hurt in slightly different ways so i would say yes i think the book handles that question of being invisible really well good did you want a little bit more from the relationship between Addy and Luke or the darkness? That's an interesting one. I don't know. I think what we get is really fun. And part of what's so fun about it is that he is very inconsistent. And he will, sometimes he'll stay away because he thinks that will upset her more. Sometimes he'll show up because he thinks that will have more of an effect because what he wants is for her to give up and let him have her soul so seeing that back and forth between them is really fun because i enjoyed it so much there's part of me that wants there to have been more but i think it was actually really well balanced with the rest of what happened in the story and i think it was just enough without it giving us too much of an insight into him. I know some people wish that his character was more developed, and I can see why, because he's he's more interesting than Henry in, in a lot of ways, like, let's be honest. I, I really liked Henry. I thought he was an important character, and I liked what they did with him. But he's just a person, whereas Luke is, well, the devil? Question mark? But I think exploring his character more would have maybe answered questions that Addie had that we didn't we as readers didn't need answering and would have weakened some of those storylines for me no that's fair that's fair 
So really, my next question would have just been, what is your seashell rating? I did think a lot about this. It's beautifully written, very atmospheric, very immersive. I enjoyed the characters, although I felt like there was some wasted potential there. Kind of with with both Addie and Henry, I think we could have seen more layers to them or more development. More, more layers to Henry, potentially more development to Addie. There's not much of a plot when you really boil the whole thing down. But for me, the premise and the way that was explored, plus the characters and the way they related to each other, that more than made up for that. I'm going to go with 4.5 shells. Yeah. So somewhere between I really enjoyed it. No, no. I'm going to go with four shells. I really enjoyed it. I think it's one of those books that there were just too many missed opportunities for me to give it a five. And talking about it, I'm remembering all the things I really loved about it. But also, I can't quite forget that there are those things where it's it's Addie's growth, I think, that's the real the real kicker for me. Yeah. Four shells. Would you, Laura, take Addie to your island library? I wouldn't. Oh, it's a close one. Actually, actually. Plot twist. Plot twist. <laughs> I will. Ooh. Because I'm going to replace the Curse Breaker trilogy. Oh, okay. Because I was just thinking, you know, I enjoyed this a lot. I think it was really interesting, but does it kick out anything I've already got? And then I remembered, I remembered that the Curse Breaker trilogy is now all three of those books. And I thought Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is better than book two. I may even have enjoyed it more than book three. So it's only fair, even though... Book one of that series was just a ridiculous joy. It's it's only fair taking as a whole. So yes, I am taking it to the Island Library. I think it I think it will bear up to rereads. Particularly, you know, the some of the stuff you find out later will I think change the way that you read some of the stuff that happens earlier on. So I think it's... I think I have to agree with you as well, because I think even since I've said yes to Nine Perfect Strangers, I'm thinking, you know, on the rereads, that slower part that I keep commenting on won't feel as slow knowing what it's building to. Mm -hmm. I think actually the second time that that reread will feed into that tension more. Yeah. So I I think I have to agree with you that even the flaws that we've pointed out aren't enough to... If anything, they actually might end up being a strength to the books in the end. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Yeah. We smashed it. Look at that two plops this week. (laughs) That sounds really grim. It does. But I really wanted to say it. (laughs) Sorry. A double victory. A double victory. For the books we read this week. And now the island uh, has been getting a bit hungry for some new books. So I'm really glad that we've read it twice this week. (laughs) It has been a little while. It's felt like a little while anyway. Obviously, we now come to the final step on our podcast journey, which is Joe's random question of the week. Beautiful. I haven't done that in such a long time that I was like, I don't know where I am on the pitch scale anymore. I mean, <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm no. I'm not a singer, so I'm, I'm going to be all over the shop anyway. But I do try and aim to not hurt people's ears. That is the <laughs> aim that I go for, <laughs> not scarring people. So I've gone with an art edition. Because Ooh. I knew that the lovely Laura was reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. And because creativity is so important to me and Laura anyway, that I've done a Get to Know Me art edition by Noah Taib. The template is by on Pinterest. I don't know if I've said that right because it's all one word. 
I've just done it phonetically. So, is it this or that? So we're going to kick off with painting or drawing? Drawing. Just like, do you think iPad? Like, <laughs> you know when I use the iPad and I, I, I fill it in, like I colour in. Do you think sure. that's painting? Because it's like electronic painting, isn't Call it? Call it painting. Yeah, so painting. Watercolour or oil? Mm, uh, probably watercolour. Yeah, I'm going to go watercolour too. Drawing with a physical thing, like a pencil or a pen or something, mm-hmm. or digital drawing? I actually used to like digital drawing, but lately most of my little doodles and stuff have probably with physical, so I'll go with physical. Just to no surprise, I'm going to go digital <laughs> because uh, I've just talked about it. Realistic or imagined? I don't know. I, I, ooh, I'm going to go with imagined. Yeah, I'm imagined too. Yeah, I'm not very good at realistic portraits or anything like that. I don't get... I prefer people's noses to not be in the centre of their faces, etc, etc, just because I can't draw them there, so... I've been trying to learn how to draw slightly more realistically, but I'm not very good at it, so I prefer just making it up. Which I'm also not very good at, to be fair. I just feel like cartoon people looks better when I draw it than realistic people. (laughs) Cartoon versions of them. Uh, Coloured pencils or coloured pens? Uh, Coloured pencils i think are easier to work with i'm gonna go with pens fair enough just because my style of art is uh is more tailored i think to pay to pens just, yeah just go bold yeah just go bold and brilliant paper or canvas god who has a freaking canvas I've, i'm gonna have to go paper i've never well have i ever worked on a canvas i have worked on a canvas and i find the bobbly parts very difficult when you're outlining in pencil uh-huh. do you know because like it's like sort of ribbed not, isn't it it's not perfectly smooth it's, yeah, yeah so paper every damn day sketch or no sketch sketch i'm not i, I mean i can't i'm not what sketch <laughs> i'm just thinking this is like because are you a plotter as well oh yeah yeah so i'm no sketch and to no surprise to anybody i also don't plot <laughs> So I'm at least consistent. I am an obsessive outliner. I'm consistent over it. I don't I don't mentally prepare anything. I just sit there and go, make it happen, and it happens. Brilliant. <laughs> Do you prefer to be artistic at night or during the day? So there's a little part of me that likes to uh, use it to procrastinate, so probably during the day. I'm going to go at night because the moon is in my name for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And finally, do you prefer to be artistic alone or with friends? Oh, um, God, when was the last time I did something in the same place as friends do you know what i really want to do i don't know if you've ever seen them on instagram it's those like painting evenings that you can do you know you can go and you can have like gin or wine or something obviously if you're of age of course any listeners that are underage and you go i think there's like a general premise like maybe a picture that you're trying to paint or something and then you just paint in your own canvas (laughs) or we get to use canvases and yeah i really want to do one of those with you i think that'd be really fun i'd love that We'll have to try and find one. But um, yes. I, other than that, other than just, I don't think I could seriously be artistic with people. I could yeah. do it for a good time, <laughs> but not a long time. I, I find noises and distractions really off-putting. So I tend to, to work alone. Yeah, I think when it comes to creativity for, like if I'm writing stories or when I write songs or whatever, you kind of can't 
really do it effectively around other people because you have to be able to for me anyway I have to be able to kind of get enough into my own head and it's hard to do that when there are other people around yeah especially if I've noticed when I try and edit when my husband's playing a game if there's a storyline that storyline tends to try and seep its way in <laughs> to the book and it has nothing to do with it sure. so that was art edition this or that which obviously brings us to the close of the island library podcast episode if you've loved us and you just can't wait another week, you can interact with us in many different places. You can interact with us on Instagram at the Island Library Podcast. You can see us on Twitter at the Island Lib Pod. You can also interact with us on email, which is in the show notes. And you can go over to our website, theislandlibrary.com, where you can find out more ways to get involved. You can even find our Patreon and you can even join our amazing book club. There's a book club tab on the site where you can find out what we're reading this month. And you can either join our Patreon to join the book club session and discuss with us. If you don't want to do that or you're not able to do that, but you still want to get involved, feel free to read the book along with us, listen to the episode and share your own thoughts, either in an email or on one of our social media channels that we've already discussed. We absolutely love hearing from listeners and finding out what you thought of the books that we've read. Thank you so much for listening to this week thank you to our book club members to our sponsors and also to our loving partners in our life who allow us to do this each week without interruption go (laughs) then thank you so much to my beautiful co-host for once again sitting with me on this fabulous morning it was lovely it was great to chat books with you again always a pleasure always a pleasure i can't wait to see you next week thank you so much everybody see you soon bye bye Here is my pitch for Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. I think it's Moriarty. Moriarty. Brilliant.